Amen. Okay, so we got to get, you know, this is, it's humbling what I'm about to do because last week I was um, approached and, and very clearly communicated to that Fargo is not in Minnesota. Yeah. That Fargo is in North Dakota. So some of you knew that. Um, also, I was corrected that Fargo is one of the richest pasture lands in all the United States. So it doesn't fit uh, where Mephibosheth hid, where it was a place of no pasture land. So humbly, uh, I never should have used Fargo, Minnesota. I should have not even used Fargo at all. In fact, I Googled, and it should have been Glasgow, Montana, is what I should have used. So just so you know, uh, I'm, I am firmly corrected. All right, you ready for another round of David? I think we're just going to finish out David because I can't get enough of him. I can't, I say, ah, I think I'm done, and then I discover, I just go, oh, I'll just read the end of the chapter, the end of the next two chapters, and I'm like, oh, Oh, so kind of the way I'm doing David, it might be a shock to some of you, is that I had no pre-planned texts. I actually read it and see what actually grabs me. And that's what we're going to do. Now, there's a long history of this kind of preaching, just so you know. Uh, There's a guy named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones that he used to carry a notebook and he would read the scriptures. And when things would like grab him, he would write it down. And at the end of a year, he put one of those notebooks together and he realized all the topics that he had put down were under or subsumed under this major heading called spiritual depression. And so he writes one of these like life-changing epic books for the church called Spiritual Depression. So there is a precedent for this, just so you know. All right, here's what we're going to do. I received a podcast from a friend of mine in this church Uh, about a guy named Pete Briscoe. Anybody know who he is? If you're in the DFW area? Okay, he has connected with thousands and thousands of people all over the world with his ministry. Uh, He's an evangelical, Bible-believing pastor, son of a famous Bible church pastor. You might have known Stuart Briscoe, some of you, seen books. Well, he just walked away from his megachurch. Bent Tree Bible Fellowship Church. Briscoe is now chronicling his exit from evangelicalism on a new podcast called Kinda Evangelical. I just started listening to it. There's one episode. It's an hour and a half long. That's all that's dropped so far. So I'm not sure what's going on with him at all. I have no idea. I have no, like, preconceived notions, but I'm just incredibly curious. And you might be saying, well, Jeff, why would you be curious about that? Because you know that I've been wondering about how the church has been holding up for the past three years. I've been wondering and kind of suspicious about how well or how not well the church has been holding up over these past three years. I remember when it first happened, I just started saying, this is going to be a very interesting time for us. Because I'm not sure if we have the gospel depth to survive or go through something like this. So I'm just curious. And it's not because I've lost confidence in God to build his church. I'm just losing confidence in the church's ability to build the church. All right. 
So I'm curious. Briscoe says this. Here's what happened. I've been struggling with genocidal passages in the Old Testament for 35 years, along with some difficult passages. I wish I could say it's just a mystery, but I can't, because I've come to believe and know God is love. And there's nothing to be considered or defined as love in God's interaction with Moses and the people of Israel in Numbers 31. And then, bang! As soon as I heard that, I just thought, oh my word, I remember sitting in the history of church doctrine class and Dr. Hannah saying to all these pastors as we were walking through the history of the church and laying out the doctrines of the church, and he said, how you answer those genocidal passages in the Old Testament, like Numbers 31 will determine how you handle the Bible, and therefore your ministry. I was like, whoa. It was amazing. That's the first thing that popped through my mind. I continued, or he continued. So I find myself questioning inerrancy. That means the Bible being the word of God in a way that it's completely inerrant, no error. And how, it, and how to make sense of all this. I've read so much on this from the library inside the house. Now, he uses this metaphor of being the house. The house is his tradition. So in his library, in his house, in his tradition, he's tried to answer all these questions, and it's just not happening for him. And there's no one who satisfy my, satisfies my abject abhorrence of those Old Testament texts. So, you know, I find myself on the threshold, wondering if someone out in the yard, a metaphor for someone outside his tradition, how they might answer it, right? The road beyond might be able to help me with some of these questions I have. The Bible is many things. Clear? Ah, not so much. Can I just say it? For most of us, the Bible is difficult to understand. He then moves to the heart of the matter for me, for him. Maybe I should be looking outside the house, outside my tradition, to understand the Bible's difficulties. Maybe, and he starts listing all these different ways. Everything from uh, different traditions to a Harvard-trained New Testament professor uh, he even mentions Baylor, uh, maybe a history professor at Baylor. So I thought there was a good shout out. And then he said, uh, even a, a famous climate scientist or a young pastor from a different tradition. So he says, yes, these are real people. I've met them in the yard. And then he asks, is there anyone else out there experiencing this too in evangelicalism in the church? Is there anyone else stepping out of your house, your tradition, to look for answers for things in other traditions. Now, at this point, I'm not sure if he's saying to answer the Bible with another tradition or to just go outside the Bible completely. I don't know. We'll have to wait for the next episode. He then goes on and starts talking about, you know, the typical things that are going on in the culture, church and culture, all the hot topics. I'm like, yeah, 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 everybody's done that. Everybody's talking about that. Nothing new, pretty predictable, Gaslight, you know, shock everybody into question a certain view that no one really believes anyway. Don't you wish we could get back to the good old days of just being able to have conversations and debate ideas? It's going to be great when it happens. Then he brings me back to the curiosity from which I began when he ends this way. Meanwhile, the church's children are fleeing the church, but the adults haven't noticed yet. Now I'm hooked again. If this 
house were a ship, people would be jumping ship, but it's not a ship, it's a house. So people are jumping house. I'm not here to burn the house down. I don't have that kind of influence. And honestly, I don't want to burn it down. I've got family and friends still in there. I'm just convinced there's a better way to walk with Jesus than evangelicalism is offering us at the moment. There it is. I'm just convinced there's a better way to walk with Jesus than evangelicalism is offering us at the moment. Today's text is going to ask you, me, the church, and church leaders, a simple question. Here it is. Are you equipped to walk with God in the valley? Are you equipped to walk with God in the valley? Evangelicalism, the church over the past 50 years, has mostly enjoyed walking with God on the mountain. Right? We have. You know, mega churches, mega ministries, mega success, mega movements, mega influence, mega leaders, mega importance, mega spiritual experiences. Spiritual experiences of being made to lie down in green pastures and sitting beside still waters and seeing a visible shepherd that you can touch, and a visible shepherd that you can see, and a visible shepherd that you can call upon, and a visible shepherd that you can mobilize. But now the terrain is beginning to change. Now it's moving into a valley. Low places that get light maybe a couple times a day. Low places where it's dark. Low places where there are wolves. Low places when you just can't see the visible shepherd like you used to. Are you equipped to walk with God in the valley? Many have been wrestling with that over the past three years and have come to realize they're not. And many of us as well, right? I say that's a good thing. Let's find out. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. All right. When King David came to Baharim... There came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of the king, of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men that were on his right and on his left. You've got to picture this. He is fleeing Jerusalem. He's got his mighty men on the right and on the left. And there is a, there is a man on a ridge above him cursing, throwing stones, dirt, rock. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, 
Your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and lighten some of his weight. <laughs> but the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to, said to him, Curse David, who then can say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, pay attention. My own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong that is done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. Of course they were. And there he refreshed himself. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, this is an amazing text, and it's an amazing place, and I wonder if this is where Psalm 23 comes from. So, O oh Lord, you, the good shepherd, you say that you walk in the valley, and so we ask you to show yourself in the valley today in this text for every one of us. And we pray this in your name, amen. So are you equipped to walk with God in the valley? That's the question of this text. So uh, a lot has happened in the past week to David, right? So we were last with David at a certain point in his life, and a lot has happened this past Monday through Saturday. So just to catch you up, Bathsheba has happened. Remember what was said of Bathsheba? The woman was very beautiful. And then what was said of her? He took her. And then she got pregnant. What also happened is Uriah the Hittite, her husband, uh, David murders, and a bunch of other men that were his friends in order to murder and cover up what he just did. David disconnects from God, disconnects from the church, and disconnects from his mission as king for about nine months. At the end of nine months, God sends a prophet to speak David back to life again. Uh, the baby dies that he had through adultery. Uh, and then nine months later, Solomon is born through Bathsheba. Second thing that's happened is David doesn't receive the Father of the Year award. Tamar, David's daughter, is raped by her brother Amnon. David does nothing. Absalom, David's son, who loves his sister Tamar, does something. He murders Amnon. David does nothing. Absalom flees. David does nothing. Absalom returns. David does nothing. More dysfunction in the house of David. David does nothing. And then there's this. Now all of Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. <laughs> From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair on his head, for at the end of every year he would cut it because it weighed so much. And it just kept getting in his way. His hair weighed about 200 shekels, which is about four pounds, kind of like mine. 
There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. Does he just love his sister or something else going on? She was a beautiful woman. Third, Absalom craves the crown, so he betrays his father. He runs his father out of Jerusalem. He leads a rebellion. And then the reader starts thinking about, oh, the prophet's words to David when Nathan speaks him back to life again. Sin always carries a penalty with it. It's, sin always carries death with it. You turn from life, what else is there? Death. That's sin. So when we do that, it just carries within itself its own punishment, its own penalty. And you start hearing the words that, that Nathan says to David. He says, the sword will never depart from your house, David. Against you, evil will come, and it will come from your own house, David. Fourth, a defeated David flees Jerusalem. Absalom is coming! Absalom is coming! And everybody starts fleeing. And so here we are, exiting Jerusalem, on a road that cuts through a valley. And there on the ridge line is a lone man. And he's cursing. The text literally says he cursed continually. Murderer! Murderer! He was just waiting for David. Stones rain down. Dust rains down. Curses rain down. Then look at verse 13. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. David and everyone with him is literally coated with condemnation. Head to toe. There's no part of him that isn't condemned. What about how David trusts God and loves God and worships God? What about his relationship with God condemned? Well, what about his personal holiness? You know, his, his ability to love people and his ability to build his life around God condemned. Well, what about like his relationships? You know, his marriage, his family, his children, his parenting condemned. Well, what about his kingdom work, you know, being a leader, leading the church and being reaching and renewing as many people as possible in the world because that's what Israel was supposed to be, to be a king and for Israel to reach and renew with the gospel. Condemned. This is the lowest point in David's life. The valley. Are you equipped to walk with God in the valley. Today's text gives you two options. You can walk with God in the valley two ways, according to this text. So we're going to look at option number one, then we're going to look at option number two, and then we'll wrap it up. Here's option number one. It's at verse nine. It's my favorite option. 
Then Abishai, the son of Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take his head off. Everyone needs an Abishai in their life. You and I, we need Abishais in our life. Today we live in a world of Shimeis. We live in a world of curses. We live in a world of stones and dust and condemnation. Where are the Abishais in the church? Where are loyal friends? Where are advocates? What are, where are the friends that will fight for you? Stop. She's my friend. What you're saying is neither kind nor true. Stop. Can we have a conversation? Can we disagree and still be friends? Why are you so fragile? Where do you get your certainty? I just want to know. I want to, let's compare the basis of our certainties. Let's just have a conversation about ideas and debate them. Where are the Abishais? God designed the church to be a community of loyal friends. Loyal friends who band together to learn how to build their messy lives and relationships around Jesus and his salvation together because we need to do it together. A band of Abishais, a band of, a band of mighty women and men. Look at David's response to Abishai, though. But the king said, what have I to do with you, sons of Zeruah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? So why doesn't, I mean... Why doesn't David just say to Abishai, go get him? David has had no problem doing that in the past. So this text is not about don't do it because David's done it. Ask the dude that came in and said, David, I just killed King Saul for you. Did you? Tell me about it. What did you do? And what did David do? He pointed to one of his mighty men, take off his head. So this is not about thou shall not point. Thou shall not be a loyal friend. That's not what's going on here. There's a deeper. This text is about how to walk with God in the valley. This text is about how to walk with God in the lowest places and the lowest times of your life. So when we look at verse 10. If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? Instead, he says that to Abishai. That's his response. He's not saying, don't do that. That's wrong. Because he's done it. He's saying to him, listen. If God has said to him, curse David, why should I stop him? Do you see what David's doing in the valley? He's refusing to take control. The absolute hardest thing to do in the valley. The first thing you and I want to do when we're in the valley is take control. And David says, no, I won't. Are you equipped to walk with God in the valley? Option number one is you can try to take control in the valley. 
This looks like not doing the hard work of listening to God. That's what ends up happening. Listen, the valley is the place for listening to God. And when we take control, we short circuit that. If perhaps he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? The point is David doesn't know. The point is David has to wait. The point is David has to listen. The point is David has to be needy. The point is David has to be dependent. The point is David has to go to places with God he's never been before. That's the point. He has to do the slow hard work of listening to God. Certainly reading the scriptures, that means that. Thinking about it. We did a pastoral training, I don't know, last week, a couple weeks ago, whenever it was, and we were asking, like, so, you know, asking about how to do that and talking through it as pastors, a group of pastors, and I said, y'all, this is the best thing that I ever discovered about myself. And that is, after I preach on Sunday, and after a long day on Sunday, when I'm not a Christian on Sunday night, my wife and I have decided that we can never have an adult conversation on Sunday night. We can never talk about our relationship, never talk about the kids. That's just off the table. But then, what I end up doing is this. I'll take the text for the following week, and all I do is open the text, and it's on Sunday. And I'll open the text, and this is all I say, oh, God. Speak me back to life again. And I read. It's the best practice ever for a preacher that I've discovered for me. You and I need to listen. We need to be spoken back to life again. You need to read the scriptures. Oh, absolutely. But you need to be preached to crucially. God makes a big deal over and over and over again in the Bible about teaching, 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 teachers, 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 because he is so committed to speaking you back to life again. And it's so important to learn how to listen. The valley is the place of listening. The valley is a place of listening to God in the scriptures and preaching and teaching, but it's also the place of learning to listen together as a band of Abishai's, of doing life together, doing church together, listening together. How did you hear that? Listening for the other person when they can't listen. I'll hear the Bible for you. I know you're having a hard time, but I'll do it for you. Listen to God while doing the next thing. Some people think it's just so weird. You look at church traditions, you know, and they think listening to God is just doing nothing. What a miserable existence. Because when you just sit there and do nothing, you know who you listen to? Yourself. The absolute definition of depression. Listening to God is like, Listening to the scriptures, listening in community with each other, and then it's do the next thing, get to work. Do the next thing. What do you do for a job? Go do it. Get up and work. Work is freedom, one of my daughters says. She goes, Dad, I discovered that work is freedom. I'm like, oh, my word, that's like so profound. Work is freedom. 
Also, trying to take control in the valley looks like forcing a feeling. Look at verse 10. If perhaps he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who will say, why have you done so? The point is, David doesn't feel good right now. This doesn't feel good for David. And he's not trying to force a feeling to save him. I mean, one of the things that happens for everybody in the valley, in particular everybody in this area, is that we are always forcing feelings. Constantly. We think feelings are going to save us. The valley is not the place of forced feelings. It's the place of listening, but it's also the place of endurance. That means you can't force a feeling when you're enduring. That means there are no quick fixes in the valley. That means there are no pressuring God to do this and do that in the valley. That means there are no flashes of divine guidance they're going to come upon you in the valley. The valley is the place of endurance. The valley is the place of listening. The valley is the place of going places with God you've never been before. That's the valley. So why do we do this? I mean, why do we try to take control of our life? It's, I mean, the answer is obvious to all of us. Because we want immediate relief. <laughs> of course we do. Of course, you're a human being, I'm a human being. You want immediate relief, but God is after something more in our life than immediate relief. Are you equipped to walk with God in the valley? Option number one, you can try to take control in the valley. Option number two, you can learn to trust God in the valley. Do you notice you can learn to trust God in the valley? This is not a quick trust. This is not a flash of trust. This is learning to trust God in the valley. Verse 11, And David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, Behold, remember that word in Hebrew? That just means pay attention, right? Pay attention. My own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Look, my own son curses me. The curse dam is broken. Curses are flooding the land. They're flooding me. If my own son is, what's a Benjamite? Leave him alone and let him curse. For, here's the reason, the Lord has told him to. Two quick things, okay? This does not mean that God spoke to Shimei in the shower. Curse David. There are people that have actually, you know, like come up to you and will say that God spoke to them in the shower. I'm like, no, he didn't. Don't, don't talk to me. That's what I say to them. I'm sorry. I just say, no, he didn't. Stop talking to me. Shimei is not a prophet. He's not even portrayed as a churchgoer. So I doubt that God talked to him. This does mean, though, that God is in control of everything. 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 This doesn't mean that God is the author of bad things, but it does mean he's in control of them. 
God told him to is a metaphor. It's just a metaphor. He just personified it. David's just personifying, using an image, an illustration, like a good preacher. Learning to trust God in the valley starts when you realize God is in control of the valley. I feel so disconnected from God. God is in control of the valley. I suffer without relief despite my prayers. God is in control of the valley. I've blown it as a king. I've blown it as a husband. I've blown it as a father. I've blown it as a human being. God is in control of the valley. I don't know what to do. God is in control of the valley. This dude won't stop cursing me. God is in control of the valley. God is in control of the valley is all the control you're really looking for. It's the only control there is. It is a solid control. It is a concrete control. It's the kind of control that actually keeps you from trying to take it. God is in control. The valley frees you to do the hard work and start listening to God. Okay, he's in control. Let's, I guess I got to listen now. You can now start waiting on God. You can now endure. Let's look at verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So learning to trust God in the valley flourishes when you realize God always overrides the valley for your good. Do you see this? This is unbelievable. You got like David walked with God when he was on the run and he had this taste of God and his grace and he learned to understand that God loves him and he learned that God's the one that fights for him and that God's the one that does the work. That's why he was able to step out and face a giant, right? And then he went through a season where he gets wrecked by himself. He self-sabotages. And you can just see him just wondering, is God is God good to me? Does God still love me? I have thought long and hard about how does someone who can take another man's life, a friend, of someone you just committed adultery with, how does a Christian survive that? I mean, you have to look at people how do you survive something like that? And he's starting to survive something like that. And he's actually beginning to see that it's really true. That capital L-O-R-D is the good news God. And that he is massive in mercy. And that's why it ends this way. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Literally, it says, and there he rested. He rested. Do you know that that word right there in the Hebrew is only used in other places in the Bible to talk about the Sabbath, the day that God completed his work, and it was finished. And therefore, you can rest because God worked and finished it. And somehow, 
in this little experience of David, the writer wants you to know that that refreshment he's experiencing right now is tied into the great work of God completing the work of creation and resting. So 2,000 years after Shimei, so what do we got? Now, we got to end this. Are you equipped to walk with God in the valley? you got option number one. You can try to take control in the valley, or you can learn to trust God in the valley. I say we all learn to trust God in the valley. I say that as we learn to trust God in the valley, we won't be uh, the hokey bumper sticker answers to everything that's going on in the culture that we'll actually make friends and we'll have gospel conversations and we'll be Abishai's. We'll say, hey, you know what, dude, come on. That's not kind and that's not even true. And besides, that's my friend. Don't do that. I don't want to have to stop you, but I'm just saying. I would never do that. 2,000 years after Shimei, another David, son of David, walks the same road out of Jerusalem. Did you know that? The same road through the valley to the cross. He is cursed the whole way. He's cursed by his best friend, Peter. Do you remember? Peter. You're going to curse me three times. No, I won't. Yes, you will. He's cursed by the temple guard. He's cursed by religious leaders. He's cursed by Herod, the king of the Jews. He's cursed by Pilate, the proxy king of Rome, the superpower of the world. The state cursed him. He's cursed by Roman soldiers. He's cursed by the mocking masses. He's cursed by the law of God. He's cursed by the wrath of God. He's cursed by the dark powers. This is primal, preternatural, supernatural, demonic beings. He's cursed by death. He's cursed by hell. He's cursed by sin. He is coated with condemnation, your condemnation, my condemnation, your curses, my curses. Did you know that Abishai is the leader of David's mighty men? Did you know that? He was the leader. Do you know what he did one time? I mean, he was the most revered, the most honored. Why? Because he's right there at David's right hand, right? David turns, Abishai, come on, dude. Do you know what he did one time? In a battle, he took on 300 of the mightiest men of that army with one spear and slaughtered them all. Did you know that his words, let me go over and take off his head, have a long history in the Bible? They go all the way back to the garden. They go all the way back to a serpent. They go all the way back to someone the Bible calls the accuser because all he does is curse you continually. 
And at the very beginning of the Bible, God promises that he will cut the head off the one who curses you continually. And at the cross, he does it. And you know what Jesus says at the cross? This is what he says. Why should this dead dog curse my brother? Why should this dead dog curse my sister? Let me go over and take off his head. And he does it. 